0: Jones steps up. Ricketts is at the high point. Jones, Aromaterio, has a lane. Nicholas Aromaterio, the shot. Scores! Holy jumping! The Italian stallion puts the puck in the back of that head. Mamma mia, Nicholas Aromaterio! So keep it in and does. Callum Jones for POTTS, At the blue line, tempting by the skate of Thomas MAYA, MAYA, down low on the half He swings out IN the slot for Botts. Kyle Potts has it, hands on, now he shoots, SCORES! Holy jumping! How do you do? Kyle Potts, puts the puck in the back of the net. Block that shot, and coming the other way is Alton McDermott, he's in on the breakaway. SCORES! Holy jumping! His grandfather, Paul Henderson, must be ecstatic about that one, because Alton McDermott, just scored his first career Buckland Cup final. Boy, off goal! Has been pulled. The Dukes are in the Oakville zone. Joe Zelvis swung that around. The Blades are trying to tie this puck up. They goes it get the, the corner. The Blades have a chance to get this out. Lions will tie it up. It. 10 seconds. Gilmore has it at the point. It's in! Tips just one! a second! It's back in the corner! You win! fucking Three! Two! One! The Oakville Blades! Oh! oh Jumping! Blades winning! Blades winning! Blades winning. The Oakville Blades are Buckland Cup champions!
1: You're watching Mamma Mia! This is Fire Talk with Nicholas Fiore. Welcome back, everybody, to episode number 26 of Mamma Mia! This is Fire Talk. I'm Nicholas Fiore, the broadcast voice of the Oakville Blades in the Ontario Junior Hockey League. And joining me on this edition of the show, I have a very special guest, Dave Poulin, 13 years in the NHL, former player, and currently a hockey analyst on uh, TSN. Dave, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it very much.
2: My pleasure, Nicholas. It's good to talk hockey and... Maybe we'll be talking about hockey that we can actually go watch in the near future.
1: And, and we all, we all hope that's the case, right? Um, that's, that's the plan. And we want to get back going, of course, sooner rather than later. And we're going to get to obviously the stuff that the NHL has said, um, a couple days now in, uh, in accordance to the return to play. So hopefully that gets going. But first I want to talk, you know, hockey with you. I want to talk about yourself because you always talk about everyone on TSN and every player in every team, but it's a chance where I get to, you know, talk to you and, and Bill bring up your career a little bit, obviously 13 years. It's a, that's a long time in, in the, in the NHL. Right. And obviously a pretty good career. You started, you started in the OP, uh, op J H L though with Dixie. So I guess, uh, similarity to, uh, the Oakville Blades in the OJHL, just a rebranding. But then you went to Notre Dame um, in the seventy-eight to eighty-two season. But then also the captain of uh, Notre Dame um, in the last season. And then obviously trying to find your way in the NHL, um, undrafted, of course, went to Sweden and then Philly picked you up. One year in Philly, and then you're the captain as well. Um, just because you've been the captain of a couple teams. Let's go there first. How? What does a captain role truly entail? Um, If people don't know already, and how honored were you to not just only be the captain of your school, but also of your first NHL team? Well, you
2: know, the, the, the route was an unusual one right from the start, Nicholas. I mean, I grew up literally, you know, a mile from the Oakville border in the West end of Mississauga and and played house league early. And and then, as you said, I, I actually played some games with the junior B at that point, Dixie Ventures. So I have played against Oakville when they were a junior B team uh, way back when. And that was on the way to getting called up to play for the Dixie Beehives, which were in the junior A league at that point. But, you know, starting at Notre Dame and, and all the way up, usually the captain when, when you're playing minor hockey is the best player. And that's usually the way it works, right? The best player gets to be the captain and, and that's the way it is. And you don't really know what goes on that. But when you're playing, when you're 12 years old and you're playing the other team, You're looking to see who's wearing the captain or the letters because they're usually the best players. And, you know, I think as you get older, while that may continue, uh, other things emerge. And I took a great deal of pride in it. I was actually a two-year captain at Notre Dame and took a tremendous amount of pride in it. And different teams handle it in different ways. Some teams, even at the NHL level, to this day, Nicholas, some teams vote on the captain as a player group. Some teams just name a captain that the coach or general manager, you know, feels is, is the way to go. And so if we start off, you know, wearing the C for the flyers, it was a tremendous pride and a tremendous shock to me. I was only in my second full year in the league and Bobby Clark had been my absolute mentor and confidant through my first year plus in the league, my roommate I worked out in the summers with him. So when he retired to become the the vice president general manager, We had a new coach coming in, Mike Keenan, who'd never coached in the NHL. And we had some real good veterans on that hockey club. And and there was always the early speculation before the year started was that Daryl Sittler was going to be named captain. And, you know, for the Leaf fans who, you know, followed Sittler's great career in Toronto, um, he got traded to Philadelphia the year before that. And he was set to take over from Clark. And and we were at a luncheon downtown, a preseason luncheon. And Sittler was to be named captain, we understood. And and then that didn't happen at the luncheon. We got back to the practice ring. We all dispersed, Sittler was called in and told he was being traded to the Detroit Red Wings. Wow. And about two hours later, I was called back to the practice rink by Mike Keenan and Bob Clark, who informed me that I would be the captain of the Flyers. And it was overwhelming, quite frankly, like really overwhelming. And we had some great guys in that locker, Mark Howe was a hall of famer and a great player and leadership guys brad marsh at a young age had already been the captain of the calgary flames guys like brad mccrimmon the dear departed who was a great great leader and sort of out of nowhere you know i was named captain and i wasn't the best player but i took a great deal of pride in it I i had a lot of really good leaders around me to help shape the way and and that's when i really you know when i've given an opinion about really young players being named captain, you know, I had four years of college and a year in Europe and a year in the NHL at that point. It wasn't like my second year in the league at 19 years old. And I've had a pretty strong opinion about not naming, you know, 19 and 20 year old captains. And it's to do with all of the off ice things that I think a captain should be involved with. And, and I don't want to put that pressure on a young player. And if a young player is a star player and he, you know, he's the leading scorer in the team, he has to deal with a lot of things. Wearing the C, that you might not think about off ice stuff. Um, you know, he might be dealing with a personal situation of a veteran player on the team that's family oriented. He might be dealing with battles between players and coaches, between players and management, where he has to insert himself. And Mike Keenan, for one, used the captaincy to his advantage. Like he really came after me hard and his goal was to make the players form their bond around me. And so when we had our battles, you know, the lines were drawn and I always looked to myself as a liaison between the captain or the players and the coach, but that was going to speak out for the players. So I think the role has a lot of different meanings depending on the level you play at. Uh, I took a great deal of pride in it. I actually have a hockey card, um, it's one of my favorite hockey cards from my career with all the talk about card collecting right now, becoming, you know, a new hobby again, and the the sale of the Gretzky card for over a million dollars. I have a unique card from Boston and it's during the playoffs in 1992. And we're playing Montreal and you can see a Montreal players glove in the shot. But the reason it's a special card for me is I have the C on in Boston. Wow. And Ray Bork was the longtime captain of the Bruins, obviously, and he was hurt during the playoffs. And they made a decision for the only time ever in his entire career to put the C on someone else. Wow. And and someone shot a hockey card of it. So it's a pretty cool hockey card for me to have. And, uh, you know, and I wore a letter in Washington as well in my brief time in, in two years in Washington. So a great deal of pride in that. And I think there's a lot of responsibility that comes with it
1: was it was it also which that's an amazing story as well but was it also more more pride in it as well because you were undrafted and 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 no one you know no one drafted you but you had to find your way to the NHL to Philadelphia through Europe through Sweden which you see a lot of people do but that undrafted process probably led you to say okay like I, I think I do kind of deserve this even though I was honored and even though you didn't really maybe think you were going to get it but you deserved it. And, and talk about also that undrafted process on how it led you uh, to the NHL. Yeah,
2: I really had no thoughts of playing in the National Hockey League. And, you know, and, and I say that. I was a hockey fan growing up, and I was a big Leaf fan growing up. And my favorite player was actually was actually Bobby Orr, um, you know, and I had a chance to meet him and develop a friendship with him, you know, post that, which was pretty cool. The first time I met him in person was after being traded to Boston, and it was my first game and I had parked my rental car in the old Boston garden in the back and I was getting out of the car and he walked over towards the car. And I, and I'm thinking to myself, this is Bobby Orr. like, Bobby Orr is walking towards me right now. And he said, Hey Dave, great to have you on board. And I was stunned that he knew my name, but that was Bobby. I mean, Bobby had somebody good working for him that said, Hey, somebody just got trailed here from Philadelphia and he may be at the rink tonight. But, uh, but you know, growing up, you know, as a Leaf fan and a hockey fan, I never saw myself playing in the NHL. I, I just didn't. I was really, really small growing up. A typical story of a late bloomer physically. Um, got an opportunity to go to Notre Dame. Continued to grow there physically. And then coming out of Notre Dame, Nicholas, I was going to work. I had a great job um, in international sales. And I was all set to go to work. And it wasn't until June after my graduation that I got a call about going to Europe. And I talked to the company that had hired me in international sales said, Hey, I have a chance to play hockey in Europe for a year. And they said, great, you know, that'll even, you know, enhance your international experience more. And so that's all I was doing by going to Europe was, you know, I just thought, well, I'll go to Sweden. I'll play hockey for a year. I'll come back and start my life. And, you know, the weird twists and turns of life, I get, you know, picked up by the Flyers. They send me the American Hockey League. I played 16 games in the American Hockey League, all in the same calendar year. Wow. And then called up to play my first game in Maple Leaf Gardens. on, And my call up, Nicholas, came on April Fool's Day. So if you're sitting in the minor leagues on April Fool's Day, oh. and the phone rings in Duffy's Pancake House. And and Duffy says, hey, Dave, it's for you. It's Keith Allen, who was the general manager of the, of the Flyers. And, and I'm like, OK, sure, it's Keith Allen. You know? <laughs> and uh, And he said, you know, we're going to. You're going to play tonight in New Haven with Maine but then you're going to fly to Toronto tomorrow morning on April 2nd and play your first game for the Philadelphia Flyers so it was such a whirlwind but from the drafting standpoint um you know it's kind of crazy because once you make it it's an irrelevant point the other player coming in that year was the fourth overall pick in the draft Ronnie Sutter you know we were rookies the same year and once you start to play you start to play it doesn't matter anymore and It wasn't like I held a grudge or anything. I was caught a little bit too. If you look at uh, the drafts of 78, 79, 80, it was when the WHA was merging with the NHL and the draft age dropped from 20 to 18. So the draft went from 12 rounds to six rounds. Wow. And then they combined essentially three draft years into one. Wow. So if you look at some of the players through that stretch, that weren't drafted. There was only six rounds of the draft. So my tremendous right winger, Tim Kerr in Philadelphia was never drafted same type of thing. And the smart teams right after those drafts, because there was such a surplus of players, can you imagine right now? And, you know, we've got so much going on with COVID if they eliminated two draft years and instead of having a seven round draft had a four round draft and combined three draft years worth of players into one. So you would combine every, you know, if we just think off the top of our heads, every McDavid, Eichel, Matthews, you know, Marner, all into one yeah. draft yeah. for three years. If you look at over a three-year period, and essentially that's what happened. And you were also absorbing the players who had already played in the WHA in that age group. So Mark Messier had played as a 17-year-old the WHA. He was a draft pick. Kenny Linsman, Mike Gartner, all those great young guys that had gone down to Birmingham as seventeen-year-olds were draft picks. So I wasn't drafted. I, I never should have been drafted at that point, but there were extenuating circumstances to the draft.
1: That's 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 actually crazy to think about. And yeah, putting those draft classes all together, just imagine uh, the pandemonium. Never mind the what, what would happen, right? That's that's insane. Um, Obviously being traded though, Dave, it's, it's not, it's not fun. I don't think really depends unless you're going from a bottom tier team to a top tier team, which you see sometimes happening in the world of sports. I lost you
2: for a split second. Yeah. I lost you for a split second.
1: You know, it's, it's tough. As I said, you know, from going, you know, being traded overall, right. In any league, it's tough. Um, but going from a bottom tier team to, you know, to a top tier team sometimes works, works out well. Um, but for yourself, you went from Philly to Boston, um, seven years in Philadelphia, and then, you know, 90 to 93 with Boston and then ending 93, 95, which, by the way, you ended your NHL career playing when I was born. <laughs> in 1995 <laughs> which is absolutely insane to me um you just, must I'm be a really young like,
2: guy nicholas you're a really young guy <laughs> oh man
1: i am turned 25 <laughs> but i mean i'm like wait he ended his career when i was born that's that's crazy to me but what's 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 it like being traded i mean 724 games um regular season in the league in the nhl over 13 years 530 points which is good racking up 73 playoff points as well. So 843 games overall between playoffs and uh, NHL and regular season, I should say, but you know, how is it like being traded from, you know, a few uh, different teams and, and what's that process like overall?
2: Yeah, I was only traded once. I signed with, as a free agent with Washington, but um, the trade was unique in itself. The Flyers, we had had a really good run with the Flyers and really three totally different teams. And Bobby Clark, as I mentioned earlier, was my closest friend. And we had maintained quite a close relationship, even as player and general manager. And so it was a one-game road trip to Pittsburgh on a Monday. And I had the same roommate for probably five-plus years at that point, and that was Rick Talkett. And it was 3 o'clock on a Monday afternoon. We were playing the the, uh, following night in Pittsburgh, Tuesday night. And the phone rang. And – oh, no was game day actually and the phone rang and, and talk picked it up and and got a funny look on his face and handed it to me and it was it was Clarkie who had not made the trip and Clarkie just said hey Davey you know I just uh just want to let you know I just traded you to the Boston Bruins and when we had played together he had told me we were playing golf one day and we were talking about being traded and he had said if a player asks who he got traded for then he doesn't really care that he got traded he just wants to know his value and so i remembered that clearly so oh. i didn't even ask him who i got traded for and i said okay and he said well here's harry Sinan's number you know you uh you've got to call him and i said no you know i don't really have to call him bob but thanks you know i appreciate it and, and i hung up and so Dockett said what's going on i said i just got traded he said no way who'd you get traded for i said i don't know i didn't ask <laughs> so that became the theme of the whole thing is Even when I went downstairs to meet our traveling secretary and get a plane ticket, he said, is there anybody else going? I said, I have no idea. I have no idea if it's a multiplayer trade. I have no idea what's going on. And all I know is I got traded. And at the time, Nicholas, I had spent the previous five plus years working in the summers. And my first agent, after two years in the NHL, said to me, you're going to MBA school, law school, you're going to work. And I said... I'm the captain of the Philadelphia Flyers. We just went to the Stanley Cup finals. I've got a job. And he said, yeah, and the average career in the NHL is 4.2 years. You're halfway done. <laughs> oh. <laughs> at which at which point I had to say, you do work for me, right? <laughs> and so I did go to work in the summers. And I, wow. I uh, went to work with a big firm on Wall Street and got all my licenses and then spun off and, and opened a little broker dealer. So, you know, I had a, a life going in the summertime and just did it in the summer. Didn't do it during the regular year. So I really had to make a decision at that point. It was January and I just, you just said, I'm going to sit back and, and, you know, see what happens and talk to Boston and see what they're thinking and, um, and, and sort of put myself in a position where I could make a choice. And, you know, w- when I was traded, there were no rumors. This wasn't like, you know, it wasn't a rumor mill at all. This was right out of the blue. And, you know, the longtime captain and, and, uh, and about three weeks before that, Paul Holmgren was the head coach, and they decided to make a change in captaincy. So that should have been an indicator to me, um, you know, that, that he just said, look, we're going young, you know, we're going to do this, do that. And I said, hey, do whatever you want to do. And so they had taken the captaincy away about three weeks prior, but still it didn't clue into me that it was because they were going to trade me, and I don't know that it was. And I don't even know that I was shopped anywhere. I, I've never heard that from anybody else. Um, You know, Clark, he just made a decision He was going to trade me And it was one for one deal for Kenny Lindsman And, you know, I was going to the best team in the NHL In the Boston Bruins
1: There you go And, you know, with that being said You have some achievements as well within the NHL I mean, well, NCAA first uh, Second All-Star team, obviously in the 81-82 Then moving to the NHL You played in a couple of All-Star games If I'm not mistaken 85-86 season 87-88 um, but, but I would say, personally, probably for me, is a couple um, more important honors, if I'm allowed to say it, in the 1986 season and 87 as well. Um, NHL top defensive forward, the Frank J. Selke trophy. And then the NHL leadership humanitarian award, the King Clancy trophy. That was big too in 92, 93. And then you were also inducted in the Flyers Hall of Fame in 2004, which I would think is a tremendous and a huge deal. With that being said, with all of the achievements you've, you've, uh, Garnished in your NHL career, um, what's your overall, you know, words or, or expressions and feeling um, your time in the NHL overall over the thirteen years?
2: Well, really blessed by the game of hockey, and you know, I played a game I loved, and it was incredibly good to me. and And I've it's woven in and out of my life the whole way through. And no matter what I've done, you know, sports and hockey has been a part of it, whether direct or indirect and you know I've really really been fortunate to play a great game and as much because of the people I've met along the way the relationships I've made the friendships I have because that's what it's about you know people ask me if I'm a Flyers fan or a Bruins fan or I'm a Washington fan I- I'm a fan of the guys I, or a Leafs fan. I follow <laughs> or a Leafs fan. I'm I'm a fan of the guys that I know that I'm have relationships with you know i'm a big fan of rick talk it's in arizona i'm a big fan of craig gruby one of my closest friends in st louis you know and that's what that's what you end up following is you you follow your buddies and you you know you you are blessed with great friendships but the game's been so good to me and and it was it was good to me in an unexpected way and that i never expected to play at the highest level if i if i'd have finished my career you know, after Notre Dame, it would have still been a great game that enabled me to get a great education at a terrific university. And, you know, I enjoyed my four years at Notre Dame immensely. I went back there. I coached there for 10 years, worked in the athletics director for a couple of years. Two of my three daughters have graduated from Notre Dame. their undergrad degrees. And, you know, so it's just been each step of the way, hockey's been a big part of the fabric. And it, it's, you know, I think it's the greatest game. And I think it's the greatest game because of the team aspect of it you know it's not an individual sport i remember having stevie eisenman in to talk to my team when i was at notre dame and he was just winding his career up as a great player in, in detroit and he came in before the game and he said to the guys and he was talking in such a quiet voice i could see all my players leaning in the list and he said if you want to play an individual sport go play tennis or golf don't play hockey wow. and <laughs> And my guys, my guys' eyes were just wide open, you know, it was like here was this future Hall of Famer telling them that if they were going to be selfish, that hockey wasn't the game they should play. And it's a pretty good lesson for all of us. But uh, I think through it, if you're going to ask me one thing and, you know, when I talk to kids, um, for for whatever reason, Nicholas, I had the ability to keep going in, in whatever I did, whatever, you know, whatever I was involved in, whatever I was doing, Absolutely. I met roadblocks. I met, you know, stumbles. There were bad days. There were great days. But if I had a talent, it was the ability to keep going. It wasn't, you know, a specific hockey skill or, or anything like that. It was that I could just keep going. And, and that's the lesson, you know, that translates across every part of the world is, and and we've had to learn it far too hard in the last eight or nine months because we've had to keep going, you know, it has, it's been really tough for a lot of people through this entire pandemic. And we're sitting here and, you know, when we are in mid December because we've kept going and we will
1: keep going. I think, I think Yarmir Yager might've taken that advice from you because he's not stopping anytime soon. It looks like he just (laughs) keeps on going.
2: (laughs) He certainly does.
1: That's for sure. Um, obviously, you know, finally just to wrap up kind of like the playing aspects for yourself, was it simply, that's it, 1995, it was time to retire, time to move on, whether it was no staff, um, no staff experience after that, just enjoy the life after, was it okay, 1995, this is my last season with the Capitals and I'm done?
2: No, it wasn't like that at all. The 94-95 season, it was the lockout year. And so we didn't play through the first half of that year. The first game was right or, you know, late January. It could end up looking very much like this upcoming season for the NHL. And Washington approached me about playing another year. And simultaneous to that, I got a call, just an out-of-the-blue call, Nicholas, on a Sunday afternoon. I was watching NFL playoff games. It was maybe early January. And I was sitting with my buddy, um, and we were watching the the NFL playoffs. And uh, the phone rang, and I picked it up, and it was an acquaintance from Notre Dame. Not anybody that worked there, but just acquaintance through the university. And... They said look you know they're thinking of making a change in in the head coach position would you be interested in coming back and coaching and i had not thought of coaching at any level it, it didn't interest me i had not thought about it i, I wasn't going to coach i wasn't going to stay in hockey i was you know i carved a career outside of it and, and that's what i was doing and i hung up the phone and, and i remember saying to my buddy that i just got a really weird phone call like right out of the blue and and that put me on a track. Notre Dame is a unique place, Nicholas. It's a really small school. There's only 8,000 students there. And, you know, everybody knows everybody. There's only 2,000 kids in each class. And people stay in close touch with the university. And they have a way of doing things. And, and within, I, I don't know, within maybe four or five days, and we hadn't started playing again, they had arranged, they had sent a plane out. To get my wife and I, they flew us out. They had a lot, a builder, they had schools for the kids picked, and, <laughs> and everything all lined up. And I remember, you know, in talking about it from a family decision, it was really a decision to go back and raise. I have three beautiful daughters, and it was a chance to go back. At that point, um, I've, I've got identical twins, and they were nine, and my youngest was five. And it was a chance to, to go back to a really, really good environment to raise them in that, you know, didn't involve anywhere near the travel that the NHL would or any of the, you know, the other things that would be involved. So it was a lifestyle decision. And I went back and and they were basically raised on the campus for the next, you know, 12 plus years. And I wouldn't trade it for anything.
1: And obviously you had a pretty storied NHL playing career in 13 years, but even longer as a staff uh, member in the game of hockey, 19 years, uh, 95 to 05 with Notre Dame, of course, NCAA as the head coach. Then 05, 06, you took a bit of a break. Um, then 07, 08, also a break. But between that, you were a scout for two years uh, with the Anaheim Ducks back in the NHL, of course, in 06, 07, 08, 09. Moving on then to 2009 to 2014, you uh, you came back home, I guess you could say, essentially, um, obviously from Timmins, but to the Toronto Maple Leafs VP, Vice President of Hockey Operations, um, five years there in the NHL. And then the final two years, 2012 to 2014 with the Toronto Marlies um, in the AHL as general manager. First, we're going to touch upon, if it's okay with you, the, why, why the little break? Because, you know, you had the Notre Dame, was it just the change of uh, the change maybe of, of your living aspect on, you know, Notre Dame for 10 years and then a bit of a break, then the ducks, then a little break and then, okay, let's push through full throttle again.
2: Yeah, no, I did things throughout that. So, um, I stayed for Notre Dame at Notre Dame for two more years uh, as an athletics director, an administrative athletics director to help build the rink, the new rink. And that was the goal of the facility. So it was actually 12 straight years there. And while I was doing that, my last two years, I had more time on my hands. I worked in the development office, essentially raising funds for Notre Dame. And that's when I chose to, uh, to go back to work with Anaheim. So I actually have a Stanley Cup ring from 2007. And then 2007 to 2009, I did step away totally. And I went into private industry in the Chicagoland area. And I, was, I always wanted to do something totally outside of the game. And I was going to, so I got involved in a business, um, was there for two years, a very unique business, and things were going really, really well. And, you know, I was a managing director and partner, and it was a really uh, interesting experience and enjoyed it. In, in the real world, as you would put it. And that's when Brian Burke got the uh, general manager's job in Toronto in late 2008, and coming into 2009. And, and Brian had been my first agent. Brian was my agent for five years wow. um, early in his career. And so I called him and I said, look, I, I want to be involved. I want to get involved. And you know, you're back in Toronto and I want to be involved. And so we met and we sort of figured it out. And so I was the vice president of Hockey Ops for five full years. Uh, from 2009 to 2014, and then picked up the Marlies in 2011, um, 2000, partway to, through 2010. And I really enjoyed my American Hockey League overlap with the NHL. And we had some really good teams. My last three years with the Marlies, we played nine playoff series. and We lost to John Cooper's Norfolk team, which is, you know, the Tyler Johnson, Andre Palat, you know, Richard Panic essentially the, the young Tampa Bay Lightning Stanley Cup <laughs> champion team. Yeah. And, uh, and then we lost to Texas as well in 2014 in the conference final. So we had some real good runs and some real good players went through that. You know, Morgan Riley, Nazem Kadri, Jake Gardner. We had a bunch of guys go through that, you know, through that team at that time. Um, and enjoyed it immensely. And then when Brendan Shanahan came in and was going to make wholesale changes um, that's when we were all fired in, in the summer of 2014. And Claude Wiesel and I essentially in July of 2014. And I had some opportunities right away to get back in. And I thought I would just sit back and sort of evaluate the landscape. And that's when uh, actually both TV networks approached me about getting involved in some capacity. I had no idea that I wanted to do TV. I had no, you know, I hadn't thought about it at all. I guess similar to when I said I was, went into coaching. I I just hadn't thought it was going to be on the path and uh, I thought I'd try it for a little while and started in 2014 on the, on the TH2N show the late night show at TSN that's hockey tonight with Glenn Sheeler. And I, and I really enjoyed it and sort of built it out and built it out. And, and now it's to a point where I, what I like the best Nicholas is I work in six or seven totally different silos and I do the leaf panels for all of our leaf games with Jeff O'Neill Um, and James Duffy, and we'll see who goes in for for Bob McKenzie, who is retired, and uh, once the Leaf games rack up. But I also do um, color on Montreal Canadian games for TSN. So I did 32 games last year, I believe, with Brian Mudrick. uh, Mike Johnson and I share that role. And then you do the shows. You do SportsCenter. You do Gino Reddish's show, which I enjoy immensely. That's hockey. Yeah. And, uh, and then there's the radio aspects. So I'll do Leafs lunch with Andy Patrillo. I'll sit in on Overdrive with Brian Hayes and those guys and, uh, and do radio shows around the country. I do regular radio show in Winnipeg. I'm on in Vancouver, in Ottawa and Montreal. So, and they're all different and they all take different levels of preparation and, and I enjoy it. I really enjoy it. You know, being in color for three years now puts me back in the rings. And you know you've got to prepare in a totally different manner than you do prepare for the panels when I do the Leaf games. So I really like the diversity of it.
1: You're, you're doing everything that I want to do one day. <laughs> Almost everything. My, I know it's uh it's the, the different network that uh, you're at, but my, my two that I look up to other than, you know, of course my idols, Joe Bowen for play by play, of course, but uh, like Tim and Sid over there, um, they're, they're amazing. But uh, yeah, every, everything that you're doing other than you said, play by play, I, That's exactly all I want to do. So, but I guess you got to start here, right? You got to start here. Keep going. You got to work your way up. Of course. Um, I just want to touch upon just a little bit. We all know the Toronto market is very high pressure. It's crazy. Um, the media, of course, um, you know, just everything in general, were you feeling any high pressure, high volume, um, no risk, no reward type of thing being with the Leafs and the Marlies?
2: Uh, No more so than I would put on myself, Nicholas. Not at all. I mean, if you look at the markets I played in, I played in Philadelphia and Boston. And you'd be hard-pressed to find, you know, in those two markets, those are pretty tough markets. Yeah. And, you know, like everyone thinks that the market they're in is the hardest market to play in. Um, You know, talk to people in Philadelphia or or Boston. Those are pretty tough markets. But it's self-imposed pressure. The pressure that we put on ourselves in Toronto was to win, was to get better and to win. And that's what it was. And nothing from the outside, you know, affected us in what we did any more than we put the pressure on ourselves. And it's an incredibly, incredibly intense job. I mean, on a day-to-day basis, there's no escaping it. And it's not the media, it's yourself. And you want to get better. You want to improve. You, you're, you constantly, you know, you're waking up at three in the morning and you're trying to figure out how to get better and how to be successful. And so of course it's a tough market and you know there are external pressures but the internal pressure that that we put on ourselves was every bit as demanding as anything that could be external
1: what um what led you to say okay i'm I'm done playing I'm done being a staff member did you would you ever did you ever think let's take a break and let's see what's next or why uh go right into broadcasting right away and What made you kind of maybe love it or like the broadcasting aspect?
2: Yeah, I really tiptoed into broadcasting. I didn't, you know, I didn't commit to going in fully, fully, you know, a go. I said, well, I'm going to try it and see if I like it. And the more I did it, the more I liked it. And it's like anything, you know, people say, well, oh, you know, you're so comfortable. You're so natural. There's nothing natural about it. You prepare, you do a ton of work. Um, you know, when the lights go on, you're going hundred miles an hour. It doesn't matter what you look like on the outside, but you do your homework and you get ready. And, and that's when you're comfortable is, you know, to this day, I mean, you still feel the same thing. And, you know, I hadn't been on air in about a month, I guess, because Gino read a show took hiatus and, you know, hockey was basically shut down. So you're doing radio stuff and you're doing podcasts and things like that, but you're not on air per se on live TV. And when you get cranked up again, you know, you get those same feelings, the same emotions, and you want to be good at what you do. And you want to, you know, but you work hard and you prepare so that when you sit down, you know, you're hopeful that someone says, wow, you look really comfortable.
1: And and that's exactly what I did. See, my lights are on, I did my homework, and I'm ready to talk (laughs) to you. (laughs) There we go. Right? Um, you got the
2: you got the picture up behind you. It's great. Look at that. Hey,
1: I, I always that's one thing people said. Uh, guest wise, um, I like my backgrounds. I know with the Oakville Blaze, I don't really have a backdrop. I got everything, so I like my backgrounds. You got to look as professional as possible. Um, and and do what you love. And this is what I wanted to do since I was very small, just being a play by play and being a broadcaster and what I love. Um, which which you know, hopefully one day it happens. Right, you just got to keep on grinding, keep on working. Um, let's talk about the game in itself, Dave, Um, if you don't mind the NHL, of course, um, what, what in your eyes is different from when you came into the league into how the game has grown and developed. Basically, let's just say going into now 2021.
2: Well, I think there's more skill from top to bottom. There were always great players and, but I think, you know when you look at the skill level of some of the individuals now it's it's really really staggering i mean to look at but i mean as much as it changes it stays the same you know i think if you you would say there are more i mean probably more individual talent from top to bottom on a team yet are the teams better I mean, I think we were really good teams because we were made up of different elements and different guys brought different things to the table and and you know, I really liked the game when I played it. And I know I, I think the best players could play in any generation. Wayne Gretzky would be the best in the game today as he was the best in the game when we played. And, you know, and, and the very best will always be the very best. But I think in terms of in terms of from top to bottom. Guys work on individual skills much more. And and I don't, you know, some of that's good and some of it's not. But, um, you know, when I say that, it's a fun game for me to watch. I love the offensive side of it. Even though I was, you know, more known as a defensive player. I mean, I love, I love watching what individuals are capable of doing, you know, in today's game. The skating, the skating from top to bottom is better for sure. And because once again, people work on it more, you know, you have all the individual practices that go on and, and, uh, and it just seems like from top to bottom, you know, that there is more individual skill.
1: And I guess a natural follow-up would be how has the league changed just specifically, maybe not on ice, even off ice, the NHL in general from then and to now.
2: We have 21 teams most of my career and you know, now there'll be 32. So just in pure numbers, there are more teams. And back then, I've spoken lately about something that was really prevalent for me was the team rivalries that existed back then. You know, you played seven or eight games within your division. Then you had your playoff rounds within your division. So your first couple of rounds, you could play teams another seven or eight, you know, seven times rather, you know, to go with the eight times during the regular season. So you might see a team 15 times and that's what we could have right now the way the divisions are aligning for this year. You know, you're going to see if this Canadian division goes as planned, you're going to see you're going to play each team nine times and and then you're going to play your first two playoff rounds within your division. So Le- you might imagine it's it's going to be great. I mean, it's going to be, hey, you know, lead, I can tell you.
1: First Habs nine times, Dave. Leafs oh, first Habs you know, nine
2: times. <laughs> But then break it down to an individual standpoint. And now, you know, what I really want to see is Shea Weber against Austin Matthews nine oh, times gosh. and Morgan Riley playing against Nick Suzuki nine oh. times or Brendan Gallagher going to the front of the net. You know, that that to me, you know, is my old rivalries, you know, with the Islanders when I started. It was the great Stanley Cup teams. It was Brian Tracey and Clark Gillies and and Mike Bossy and Dennis Podvan, just Hall of Famers that I had to line up against every night. And it was, it was phenomenal. And, and that's what I hope we get back to. Because you talk about, so Columbus plays the Leafs last year in the playoffs for the first time. But they'd only seen each other two or three times during the regular season. They don't really know each other. And, and even, you know, they have a good, a good five-game playoff series. But now, because of the pandemic, you don't see each other again. And there's nothing that builds off of that. When you play a team 15 times, believe me, there's going to be things that build off it. You're going to to learn to hate Brady Kachuk to a whole new level. He's he's one of my favorite young players in the league. And I've done games between the benches. And it's comical to see him down at that level. Like he's so involved in the game and he brings everybody with him on both teams. And so, you know, you're going to see unique things like that build up um, to a whole different level however it moves forward if it stays within the canadian division whether we do mini bubbles you know however it configures you're going to learn as a fan what the players learn when you play a team that many times it's it's really fun and really personal
1: You, yeah and absolutely and i couldn't i couldn't agree with that more i mean as a as diehard leaf fans over here i was in leaf pajamas before i was even born it feels like and uh and my dad and i watch games like crazy um for the Leafs, and it's going to be interesting. That Canadian bubble, like like I said, I listen and I watch. You know, you guys on TSN, I watch you know the guys on Sportsnet as well, and everyone's loving this Canadian bubble idea, and I'm I'm all for it as well. Um, I can't wait for it. Speaking of you know the changes, just to go back a little bit on the NCAA, just changes in hockey in general. You've obviously been in the NCAA for a very long time, playing and coaching. Have you seen any difference in in the way the NCAA has developed players? Or, or the way that game changed as well within the schools?
2: Well, I think it was much perception as anything. You know, when I went to college, it wasn't the fast route to the NHL by any means. And what changed that was the great 1980 U.S. Olympic team, which was an entirely, you know, college-based team. And, and a lot of those guys went on to see stardom and superstardom in the National Hockey League. And so that was the start of it. And then over the years, I, I've always looked at it as a great, alternate route and just to look at your options. And so if you're a a high-end, you know, 14 or 15 year old in the Toronto area, and I get asked the question all the time, is college for everyone? My first question is going to be, do you like school? And if the answer is no, it's not for you. you. You can't go to an elite university. And if you don't like school, I mean, you're not going to survive. You're not going to exist. And you can't go to a great You know, NCAA hockey school, if you're not willing to do the work academically, and and some aren't, and that's fine. But it provides a great option to progress, maybe at a little bit different pace. Um, Practice to game ratio is very different. You don't play as many games, you practice much more. That suits some players for development, it doesn't suit others for development. So it's very individual, and it's not a, a uniform answer in what's best. It's what's best for the individual. And, you know, when I went to, to college, I went with no thoughts of playing in the NHL. I went down to experience a great university and play a, the game that I loved and have it help to finance my education, which it did. You know, I was on a scholarship when I went down. But it wasn't, you know, I'm going down there as a direct route to the NHL. It simply wasn't. The NHL just happened. And, you know, so many aged players are the best at a 14-year-old age or at a 15-year-old age or at a 16-year-old age that don't play out, you know, and then you've got your late bloomers. Zach Hyman's a great example of a kid who, you know, just developed late and later and stepped in and was ready to play in the NHL right when he got there as a 23 or 24 year old. And, and that was more my route. And, you know, once I got there, I wasn't giving up my job and Zach Hyman hasn't given up his job and he's not going to.
1: Absolutely. Um, you, you touch upon development a little bit there, and that's exactly where I was leaning to next with the, you know, the NHL draft and the players coming up um, out of the draft, you know, obviously the players that just were drafted a few months ago, I spoke to one of them, Cole Perfetti, who was just uh, drafted by the Winnipeg Jets, 10th overall, even though you were undrafted, but you, you know, you're in the game and you cover everything and you've looked at it throughout the years, especially with TSN. Have you seen any changes of like the draft and how players are being developed um, with the crop, the new and next crop, every single year um, coming out of the draft for the NHL?
2: Teams are putting much more into the development aspect of it and all the way up and down, development coaches. There are teams in the NHL that have a development coach for each position. And so they will have a development coach, a left-wing development coach, even if they don't have any current left wings that have been drafted. And they'll work with their, you know, their AHL guys and, and they'll work with, you know, and so that's how sophisticated it's got. And, and people realize now the importance of it. and But I will tell you, back in, I think, 86 was the first year the Flyers had a summer development camp, which was unheard of then, to bring your draft picks in. And, and the reason I remember it so clearly was they asked me to come in and speak to the draft picks and the players they had signed. And I remember walking in and there were, you know, so there was the regular number of draft picks and they might have had 15 or 20 kids in the room when I walked in and, and I laugh about it to this day because one kid stood out and it was an undrafted kid and I remember thinking to myself after who is that kid and like he carried himself with a confidence slash arrogance that was staggering you know and like and I'm like is that our first round draft pick? And they were like, no, we didn't. He's just a free agent we signed out of the West. And it was Craig Berube. It was Craig Berube. And I remember where he was standing in the room when I walked in. And so different teams handled it in different ways. That was way ahead of the curve to have a summer development camp back, you know, in the mid 80s to try and prepare kids for what to expect. Because very often back then, their first training camp was a wasted adventure because they came in and their eyes were, you know, so wide open and they were there for three days and they were going back to junior so I think teams have gotten so much more sophisticated in handling the development aspect of it and in players realization you know things like off ice training and, and the uh, diet aspect of it and the sports science aspect of it just light years light years ahead of where it was back then
1: I want to uh I want to touch upon the Leafs a little bit because you cover them a lot obviously with TSN and and on the panel um as well and obviously from here you know from Timmins from Toronto I guess you can say um they they had a lot of pickups they had a lot of pieces this off season Kyle Dubas went to work um as some Leaf fans would probably say finally in a way but uh it's tough right uh the Leafs and the Toronto market as we mentioned earlier it's it's high pressure it's you know it's a bit intense it's you know The media um, demands kind of a certain standard, but the fans demand even more of a broader standard. They had pickups of like Joe Thornton um, and Wayne Simmons and Jimmy Vesey and so many other of these one-year contracts. What do you see about the Toronto Maple Leafs this upcoming season or hopefully, let's say, a January 13th start date? Um, What do you think they're going to look like and how do you think they're going to do?
2: Well, they're going to be different. And and they should be different because what they've done to this point hasn't worked to the best of their advantage. I mean, they haven't won a playoff series, and that's the next has to be the next target for sure. And you know their high end skill is well documented. It's so good, um, and you know the salary cap issues have been well documented and well talked about, and you know you know well advertised, and that they've got a lot of their money tied up in a handful of players. And if those players aren't their best players. Every single night to a whole different level, it's not going to work. Now, what they've done is gone out and complimented those players. And, you know, I had a great mentor when I was a young player, and that was Bobby Clark. He was phenomenal to me. Will Joe Thornton be that to one of the young players? Will he provide, you know, one player, just one player and take him to the next level, be it Austin Matthews or Mitch Marner or whomever it is? And, you know, and, and then will he also perform as a player? because you can't just be a voice in the locker room. That doesn't work. If you're just a voice in the locker room and you can't perform on the ice, then you're an assistant coach. You know, you're not, you're not a player. And, you know, I played late into my, you know, 30s. I was technically 37 years old, my final year. You've got to be able to play. And so that, that'll be the question. And just how the pieces fit together. And, you know, I, I think Lantman is a big question on the defensive side. If he comes in, and you're inserting a veteran in the lineup and not, you know, an NHL rookie into the lineup, then so much better. TJ Brody, big adjustment coming back into his hometown area. And, you know, and he'll, he'll realize that and understand that. But each individual piece is, is for a reason. And, and And I like that because they were missing some elements. I thought going into the playoffs, you know, for certain types of games, they were just missing elements that were necessary. Wayne Simmons will provide that element and, uh, and Joe Thornton will provide that element. And so I, I think Kyle Dubas has gone out and addressed what he felt were the pieces that he needed. And, you know, he's done that, but he's also done it within a very, very tight budget because, because that's, that's what they have to work with. I mean, that's just the fact, you know, when you're paying four players, that percentage of the salary cap, you're going to be limited somewhere else.
1: You hear these names of the Toronto Maple Leafs now and the likes of, yes, you got Matthews, Marner, Nylander, Tavares, Riley, but then you hear names like Joe Thornton, Jason Spezza, a few years ago, Patrick Marlowe. Imagine if the Leafs had all these guys in their prime, maybe winning cups left, right, and center. <laughs> uh,
2: it, it better be a league with no salary cap.
1: <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly, exactly. And you see the NFL and the NBA just spending money on on players and I kind of like that the NHL doesn't have that because there's no really super team and there's no team yeah let's have 12 all-stars on one team you know what I mean or 10 all-stars yeah. on one team which that would be I guess good for that team but really not good for anyone else um thought, thoughts of I, I, I wanted to ask uh this for you because some Leafs fans always um are skeptical with some decisions everyone makes I mean but that's just in general. You can't please everyone. You can't be, and you can't make everyone happy. That's for sure. And you know, that probably firsthand, but in the likes of, you know, some certain players and one in like Martin Marinson on the blue line, people, you know, are wondering why do they always maybe play him? Or why do they always pick him? Is it just because of the money and the salary to have a certain guy up instead of uh, maybe Erasmus Rasmus Sandin or someone that has a larger salary cap? So then it's easier to go up and down from NHL to AHL.
2: Yeah, that's a lot of questions in one. Martin morrison yeah. provides a safe outlet for them at a price they can afford. And, you know, and the weight of it is, you know, if you keep him up in the NHL and he plays seven minutes a night, you're not hurting his development. Whereas with Erasmus Sandin or uh, Timothy Lilligran, if he's going to play the role he ultimately will play in the NHL, then he may be better served to do it in the American Hockey League at 22 minutes a night or, or 23 minutes a night. And so it's all about the development of the individual. I mean, it really is. And... You know when you look at it but it's funny you say that about Toronto Nicholas every city that I go to is exactly the same in terms of how hard they are on their fans I mean I, I tell people in when I played in Boston if we lost to the Montreal Canadiens I couldn't go pick up my dry cleaning wow he wouldn't give it to me he wouldn't cool. give it to me I'd have to send my wife to go get my dry cleaning
0: because wow. he'd
2: be so mad at me because we lost to Montreal oh my goodness Once again, I know you think that it's unique in Toronto and Leaf fans are so hard on certain players or in Philadelphia, we went through a stage where number three, whoever was wearing it would get booed off the ice and have to be traded. And it started before I arrived with Tom Bladen, it went through Ben Wilson, it went through um, Doug Crossman it, it, it was crazy and then we we got a young player Gord Murphy who was a real good young player and they gave him number three I said why would you give him number three like don't get don't use it because <laughs> the fans just don't like number three doesn't yeah. matter who's wearing it so Absolutely. every every place has their unique fans and their, you know so it's it's not just Toronto that's hard on an individual
1: yeah. And fi- finally for the, for the Maple Leafs, um, they have a good situation, but a tough situation on the blue line. Um, obviously, you know, picking up uh, TJ Brody uh, signing in four years, um, Zach Bogosian, then you have Travis Dermott and Muzzin, Riley. There's, there's going to be guys out of the lineup. Sandine, Letton in. Um, is Zach Bogosian a guy, which for me, like as, as just a, an outsider as a fan, I would have him in the lineup. Big body can win puck battles in the corners um, a little bit intimidating factor. I would have him in. Skill-wise, maybe not so great, right? Maybe like a Travis Dermott or a Lettinen, If We have we have to see what Lettinen's all about. And a Sandine. Is it going to be a tough decision? And will Zach Bogosian get the playing time that he may think he'll get on his one-year deal with Toronto?
2: He played a really important role in Tampa, but if you look at it, it was he and Luke Shen and Eric Chernak and, and Jan Ruta who played the right side and they all filled a really nice role for Tampa, but the two lefty they were playing with were Ryan McDonough and Victor Hedman. And, and, and then of course you had the young, uh, young Sergachev as well on the left side. So you had the strength there, but how the pieces fit, I think Zach Bogosian will be a real nice complimentary player. And, and I see him playing with a Morgan Riley. I mean, that's the way I see it, just as he complimented a Victor Hedman or, you know, a Ryan McDonough. And I think he can play up in the lineup. And then how the pieces fit left, right. You know, I think Letnin is the big unknown here. It, it depends on how he comes in. You know, Jake Buzzin's going to be your third defenseman, essentially your, your second left defenseman. And he's going to anchor that second pair. Um, TJ Brody may fit there. So it, it depends on left, right, and, and largely on what the most unknown of the group clearly is Letnan. If Letnan comes in and can play a top four role, then that changes your mix entirely. And it lets you just, you know, progress with Sandine and Lilligren at the pace you want to, you know, between the Marleys and the Leafs. And the other factor you have to factor in here somewhere, Nicholas, is we don't know exact roster size. And we don't know compression of games. We don't know how those 56 games are going to fit into how many days, if that's how many they play and, you know, what it's going to look like. And so, you know, it sounds like there's going to be an expanded roster of some sort and we're not sure about the starting date for the American league either. So that's, that's answering a question with more questions. And that's because there are more questions.
1: Hey, I love it. I love answering questions with questions. It's just what we do. Um, but uh, I guess it's a, just a simple, a simple yes or no, in your opinion, are the Leafs a better team today?
2: I think they are. Absolutely. Yeah, I and think I, they are. I think they are. Yeah. I think they are. It'll be up to them to go out and play, but, but I believe they are. I also believe that every team in the Canadian division is a better team than they were last year. And people will dispute that with Vancouver, but I think Holtby is a really quiet Oh, yeah. Pick up for Vancouver, oh, yeah. you know, and lets Thatcher Demko grow. And, and those kids they have out there, specifically Hughes and Pedersen and Besser, I mean, those are young kids that are going to get better. And you can't tell, you know, the world that your players are going to get better and everybody else's aren't. And, you know, there's going to be an upside there. You know, Calgary adds Tanev and, and Markstrom, and, and Montreal may have added the most out of anybody in Canada. I mean, Jake Allen's going to be a sneaky good backup to carry Price. And then in the back side, adding Joel Edmondson, he's not fun to play against. And, and we know that, that Weber and Sherratt and Petrie aren't. And now you've added another, another piece to that. And, you know, if their weakness was goal scoring, Tyler Tafoli is a pretty good goal scorer. And Josh Andersons a real good player. So, I mean, everybody in Canada has gotten better. And Winnipeg is the one team that you would say, well, have they gotten better? Well, I think they're a really good team. You know, they were thrown off last year by the fact they lost their four top defensemen. But they have three young guys coming as well that could be big factors and stuff right into the National Hockey League. One from the NCAAs and Dylan Sandberg. Um, one from Europe and Ville Hanola. And then Sammy Niku who played in the American League for them. So I think everybody's better in Canada. So you, if you're the Leafs, you better say you're better because everybody else has, has taken a step.
1: I'm sure Leaf fans are going to want to hear that the Toronto Maple Leafs are better this season. I, I, can, I can bet you on that, especially another uh... – Another season of going out early in the playoffs, just thinking numbers-wise, you know, you stopped playing when I was born. Meanwhile, the last time the Leafs won the Stanley Cup was 1967. That's when my dad was born. Just insane to just think and process the numbers. Finally, within the NHL, Dave, you know, this proposed January 13th start date, your, one of your colleagues at TSN, uh, Pierre Lebrun, just tweeting out like crazy, and he always does well, and Darren Drager as well for, you know, your colleague. They always tweet out and keep everyone informed. Are you personally hearing the January thirteenth start date? Is what are the what are the things that you're hearing? And are you? I guess if if you don't mind, if you can say your personal opinion, do you think there will be a season?
2: I do think there will be a season, and I think that date is fluid. You know, I really do. I think if we're sitting here today and we're saying the thirteenth, that's the goal. That's what they're working toward because you have to have something to work towards. If something from the outside gets involved, what I like, Nicholas through this is, and I was working on March 12th when the whole thing caved in, we did six hours live on TSN when the league was postponed at that point. And I said, the one thing it could do is give the NHL and the NHLPA a chance to forge a whole different level of relationship. And it looks like that's what happened. And then if you go back three weeks ago, it looked like they were negotiating against each other again. And then, and then all of a sudden they weren't. All of a sudden, it was like, okay, it's we and the bad guy is the pandemic. And if we're going to negotiate, we're going to negotiate together and we're going to negotiate against the pandemic and try and figure it out. That's the variable we don't control here. I think there's going to be a season. If it's not the 13th, then something from the outside, i.e. the pandemic has caused that and we have to work around it.
1: It's like, uh, it's like the flip of the switch. <laughs> what, what, side, what side are you on? And, and you just kind of work hard and be patient, I guess, right?
2: Mm-hmm. exactly the- that's all we can do it's out of everyone's control
1: uh, finally you know Dave moving, uh, moving on to the world juniors you guys you know TSN covers that a lot obviously we've seen uh, Canada go through a quarantine and they're back uh, training back practicing now um, what, what, how do you see the whole world junior tournament panning out if you want to give me your predictions on gold silver bronze I'll, I'll take it <laughs> but for Canada's perspective as well um, along with your predictions, how do you see Canada going? Uh, how do you see them doing? And, and what are you hearing, if anything?
2: Well, I think Canada's got to be, you know, clearly one of the favorites, if not the favorite coming in, just on the strength of having the players they wouldn't normally have. Maybe a Kirby Dock wouldn't normally be available. Maybe a Bowen Byron wouldn't normally be available. Who knows if Cole Perfetti would have been available. And, you know, if there were an, a regular NHL season. But the U.S. is going to be good. I mean, the U.S. is going to have a real powerhouse team coming out of that national development team program, the training program. Um, The Swedes sound like they're being the most affected by COVID at this point, but we haven't heard a word about the Finns or anything that's going on there. And, you know, that's a team that always, it's always, always, always impressive in this tournament. So, you know, I I don't know it to the level of what a Craig Button or Ray Ferraro knows it because I don't work at that level very often. Um, I'll do the U-18s in a normal year or the U-17s, but uh, but don't see those players as much as these guys do. So um, I know Craig really thinks this is a strong Canadian team and, and that they'll be the favorites going in, playing at home. And and we've just got to get to the start line. I mean, that's what we've got to do. We've got to figure out how to get these players to the start line so the bubble can protect them and and then look forward to seeing some great hockey.
1: Absolutely. So no prediction for gold, silver, or bronze, eh? <laughs> It's all good. No, nope. It's all good. I, I can say I predict Canada. I'm Canadian. I have to. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and finally, finally, Dave, advice for, you know, young broadcasters, advice for myself, you know, went to school for it, starting up this podcast, getting on, you know, getting yourself on the show, which I greatly appreciate and so many former NHLers as well. Um, what advice do you have from, you know, for me and for for all these other kids trying to come up? obviously a player turned broadcaster or player turned staff member turned broadcaster. Um, what's your advice?
2: Nothing replaces hard work and preparation, Nicholas, in your job. You know, I've worked with the best play-by-play guys in the sport and, you know, guys like Chris Cuthbert and Gordon Miller. And, and I work my regular partner, Brian Mudrick is just tremendous. Wow. And he worked all the way up. I mean, he came all the way up. He came through curling. He came through minor hockey you know, he, he just ground his way up and kept going and, and worked the world championships and worked, you know, the, the, he'd worked the offside of the, of the tournaments, the international tournaments, where you didn't see him as much. But he is just a great play-by-play guy. And, and we've built a really nice relationship. But those guys work really, really hard. And they're the best. And their level of preparation is impeccable. And it doesn't matter what game it is. The gold medal game of the World Juniors is the same to them as a Tuesday night game between, you know, the top team and the bottom team. It doesn't matter. They prepare the same way and they treat each game like it's the game. And that's the key. And that's what they've passed on to me. And there's no such thing as, oh, this isn't as important a game. Every game that they do is the most important game. And that's what makes them the best.
1: I'll tell you one thing. That's exactly what I do. Every game for me is huge. I went to Brooks, Alberta with the Oakville blades a couple of years ago where I met Craig button. Actually Um, he was there because the finals of the national junior championship was on TSN. Um, And I met him obviously in the blades, you know, came and finished in the semifinals. And it's exactly for me, that level or a regular season game against the Milton menace. Let's just say I have all the same level throw, which um, that's one thing that's going for me. And I know hard work and, and dedication and passion. Right. And then that's what I have. You just got to wait and look for your break. Right. And uh, that's exactly what I'm going to do. And I, and I uh, waited, and I looked for my break in speaking with you and I appreciate you coming on Dave. Uh, I really do. Um, you know, best of luck, obviously, you know, continuing your broadcasting career and, and moving forward. But a lot of guys in your position, Dave, if I'm completely honest, sometimes don't give a guy like myself a chance coming up in the business. who have been broadcasting, you know, for, for, for over six years now, um, you know, former NHL or TSN, you know, on TV, like, yeah, who is this guy? You know, you know what it is, but you, you came on, you, you, you messaged back and I appreciate that more than you'll ever know. Um, and, and I do appreciate you coming on my show.
2: Good luck with everything, Nicholas. It's been my pleasure and uh, keep working hard.
1: Absolutely. Everyone that is Dave Poulin, TSN hockey TV analyst as well as 13-year NHL career in the National Hockey League. Dave pulling everybody. I'm Nicholas Fiore. the broadcast Watch the Oakville Blades. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year as well. Enjoy the World Juniors also because it's coming up. And stay safe and mamma mia.
0: Now Davis takes it and looks to come the other way. Davis is in, trying to drive, and he will look to go across. Good play to Davis, though. To get it right back to him, he goes down low to Israel's Centering. It's there. SCORES! Stevie, Stevie, Stevie! Steven Widow scores his first OJHL playoff goal for the Oakville Blades. This game is opening up in a big way for both teams. Ricketts centering, one a pass. Israels breakaway, the move, SCORES! What a goal for the Alaska Fairbanks commit. The assistant captain, Harrison Israels, with an absolute dandy. Download alliance. Jack Lyons centering. Scores! The double jacks combined as the that puck popped up like a jack in a box. And it's Jack Ricketts from Jack Lyons. 6-1 on the 40th shot of the game. It's all over now. Colette Smith hits it in. A chance here can develop, but the blades they look to take it. And is and Ricketts finds Israels. Breakaway Israels a chance back in. And the old foul plays win it! Here in Toronto Blades win, blades win,
1: blades win! That was Mamma Mia. This is Fire Talk with Nicholas Fiori. Thank you for watching and stay tuned for the next episode.